It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, good evening, sir. Good evening, mate. I think he was back on one to talk about football with the mates. Best to do what I'm, I'm Absolutely, and that voice you could hear, guys, is Mr. Gary Thacker. We've done a couple of podcasts uh, previously to talk about some wonderful books of yours. Uh, two of them that I've got on my bed amongst a group of other books uh, about Brazil. But this one, Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange and the Dutch Masters, those are two of the books that you've previously uh, written through Pitch Publishing. But I wanted you just to briefly talk to people that don't know or haven't heard the podcast before, your back catalogue of books in these football times and who Gary Thacker is. Sure, sure, mate, no problem. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I've um, been a, a member of these football times for about, I don't know, six or seven years now. I've worked for the magazines for a long time and a lot of podcasts on there. Um, and yeah, I, I, I've uh, lived in Spain now for knocking on for six years now, and uh, until recently, I wrote for uh, a Spanish language, English language Spanish newspaper over here about a weekly column on La Liga. And uh, yeah, I've written um, this the book we're talking about now, the Brazil book, would be my eighth book. Um, I've written a couple of novels, and uh, one about what uh, the first one was sort of like a, a self-published, semi-autobiographical thing. I've written a book about England. Uh, and then you mentioned, you mentioned the two Dutch books, one about Ajax and about the Dutch national team, and a book about Chelsea winning the Champions League in 2012. And then this is number eight, which is about uh, about the Brazil team in 1970. I, I only tend to write books about things that are, that I would say that I love, but things that impress me, things that I like. And 1970 was, I mean, if the Dutch team was the best team never to win the World Cup, 1970 Brazil was the best team to ever win the World Cup. I think you're absolutely spot on and uh, we're going to be talking about your book because it's not just about the 1970. Oh, Jogo Benito. I looked and I thought, what a great name for a book. The cover's fantastic. It's always Pitch and Duncan at Pitch that picks the covers and the geezer is an absolute genius because he's bought another one out of the bag. It's a beautiful game in Portuguese, isn't it? It is quite right, man. You're right about Dunk as well. Um, this is my fourth, well, fourth or fifth book with Pitch. And when we talk about the covers, I mean, I always say to Dunk, well, you know, uh, I think this and this, but whatever you say comes out best. And he's just, as you say, he's a genius. And the cover's really beautiful. It really represents the, the vibrancy of the uh, Brazil play and the sunshine and Mexican uh, World Cup. So, yeah, you're quite right, mate. It's a, it's a brilliant cover. And that World Cup, arguably the most colourful World Cup ever. Um, in terms of the the, the vibrant colours of the shirts of the crowd and Mexico, the Azteca Stadium, etc., etc., and colour television, of course, because the last World Cup was pretty much and um, previous World Cups all in black and white. This was the first one that was totally in Technicolor. 
you're right, mate. Yeah, it is. The, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why this World Cup is always sort of um, uh, remembered so fondly, not only because of the, the football, but because of the, the, the sort of spectacular yeah. um, uh, presentation of it, because, as you say, it was all in colour and... Uh, you know, it, and the, the, the crackly voice as well on the, the, the commentary. It was like listening to somebody, you know, Apollo 14 talking from the moon. It, and it was sort of this whole atmosphere about the World Cup. And the really interesting thing about the, the, the use of the Telstar ball, if you recall, Paul, and this yeah. is the first time they used this World Cup. Well, the Telstar ball, Adidas um, designed that for black and white television because it would show up better than a white ball uh, on, on monochrome. And of course, now it's it's obviously linked with the colour in the World Cup, and forever will be the, the Telstar ball and the colour of the World Cup. And it was actually designed for black and white television. And also, as well, it was the invention of of TV. We had uh, more coverage in 1970, didn't we? We had, you know, the panels were just getting their acts together, etc. There was there was a lot of cutting edge stuff going into the 1970 World Cup, and of course. A lot of it was in altitude as well, being there in Mexico, wasn't it? Absolutely, buddy. Uh, there's a, one of the reasons Brazil did so well is uh, because uh, two years before, the Olympics were held in Mexico as well. And there's a guy who was uh, in the, uh, um, a scientist in the, in the uh, Brazilian Navy called Da Costa, who did a big study about uh, the effects of altitude athletes in, in the Mexico Olympics. And what it learned... He took into uh, to to the Brazilian uh, CBD, the the Football Association, to sort of say how you get the best benefit out of playing at altitude. And he basically his plan was they played at three different uh, training camps before going to, uh, to to start the tournament. Each one at higher altitude. So when they got there, although they were playing in uh, Guadalajara, which is fairly low, the the presence of the altitude training in their legs was always there right up to the final. So the altitude was a massive thing, Paul, in the um, in the, in the World Cup, and a lot of teams didn't uh, have, have that same sort of preparation suffered, and Brazil scored the bulk of their goals in the second half of games because they were just fitter, and the altitude training they did was, was serving so well. And that's the thing in Central America and South America. We don't, as Europeans, don't understand how vast those those countries are and that continent is. And again, how colourful that continent of South America and colourful in the way that the carnival, Brazil, the Samba boys, you know, it was just everything was was really waiting to explode, wasn't it, in 70? And it did. Oh, yeah, definitely, mate. I mean, it's interesting to say about the size of countries in South America. Um, the north, the northern part of Brazil is nearer to Canada than it is to the southern part of Brazil. Mad, That's it? how big Brazil is. Yeah. A strange fact to be. But yeah, the, the, the colours there, I mean, Brazil obviously in their, their, their famous yellow Canary shirt, and, but Peru as well, and that, that sort of iconic white shirt with a big red sash and um, Uruguay in the sky blues. So there's so much colour, um, as you say, in the South American uh, uh, football. Um, obviously Mexico as well, playing in the traditional green shirts. The, 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 the colour presentation, colour TV, really enhanced the presentation of that tournament and, and made it probably the most iconic World Cup of all time. I think so. I think if you look at in the history of football, I think that 1970 World Cup finals was fantastic. And I just want to give a shout out to um, Andrew uh, Downey, the greatest show on earth inside story of the legendary 1970 World Cup. So it's all about that World Cup in uh, Andrew's book. And he's also a connoisseur on Brazilian football, isn't he? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I was caught, I was um, privileged enough to get an interview with Andrew for uh, for the book. Uh, quote him, he, he, he's such a nice guy. Um, you know, you, you sort of ask, say to somebody, you know, can I can I ask you a few questions? And you know, you send an email off, and he comes back three weeks later, and one word answers. But Andrew was brilliant, and he gave me mm. so much information. As you say, an absolute doyen of, of um, Brazilian football, as well as that, you know, the great show on Earth. He also wrote, also wrote the book about Doctor Socrates as well. So yeah, this guy knows his stuff, and great asset to uh, to have to be able to quote in the book as well after the conversation I had with him. Football philosopher, legend, Socrates. That's it. Uh, That's by Johan Cruyff. Again, I've got yeah. that in my hand. It's in my library. Brazil of 1970, quite unfancied, wasn't they, uh, going into the World Cup? Or they didn't particularly fancy themselves, did they? No, they didn't. Uh, it, it's been a bit of a chaotic situation mm-hmm. because that uh, just a couple of months before this tournament started, they sacked the manager, Joel Saldana, but had taken them through the qualification and right up to this, almost to, to the start of the preparations for the World Cup. Then he got sacked and they brought in Zagallo, literally two months. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to change the system they played. And, uh, you know, as you, as you quite rightly say, Paul, you know, they went they went out there hardly as, as, as favourites. And uh, I think it was Rivellino said when they, when they sort of flew from Brazil, a lot of people weren't even expecting to go to the group, of which, you know, when you've got a group where you've got England in the, in the, in the same group, so you've got the, the last uh, three World Cup winners in the same group, which seems such a strange situation because it's happening today. But, uh, yeah, no, they, if they slipped up against Romania or the Czechs and then got beat by England, they could have, you know, not got out of the group, but obviously that didn't happen and they did and they sort of became such the, the wonderful team that they were. Again, very different in those days. We didn't have seeding systems like we do today to keep the big hitters away. It was just literally the look of the draw. I look at Brazil in 70 as a team, and you've just alluded to the fact that the manager uh, come on board pretty much a couple of months uh, before the tournament started. A little bit of synergy there with the Dutch team of 1974, they had injuries in the camp, and Renus Michaels, he came into it quite late, didn't he, if, if memory serves me right? Yeah, I mean, even later, I mean, basically the qualification was done, and uh, he got there to pick the pick the squad and then take them to the tournament, but uh, there's a goal I think was a bit different in as much as Salvana was well, there's many reasons why people have said he got the, he got the sack in the end, but um, he, he was he, this, this was Brazil were under a military junta at the time, very right wing military junta. Saldana was a communist, so that, that didn't help. His, his, uh, there's a story about a guy called Dario, who was a forward, who was apparently one of um, Medici was the uh, president at the time, his favourite player, and Zald, um, Saldana wouldn't pick him in the squad to play, and, and he fell out with lots of people. He was very abrasive, Saldana. So it's a strange situation, you know, to, to sort of ha- go through the qualification situation and everything going well and all of a sudden things blow up and as you say you know, it's a bit like the Dutch just when things are going well you turn the table over and uh, you know the Brazilians appoint a new, a new coach I mean literally two months ahead of the um, the tournament started and he wanted to play a different system um, Saldana had played a 4-2-4 system and uh, Zagallo's um, system was play 4-2-4 going forward but he wanted to play a 4-3-3 when they hadn't got the ball he wanted a left-sided player who could drop back into midfield with the last possession to, to sort of solidify the midfield and play a 4-3-3. So he had to get the players in place to do that. 
and he brought in Rivellino, who was he brought in to do that, to play that role because a couple of the wingers had got inherited from Saldana couldn't do it. So and he changed the team a couple of times. It was really weird, and there's a couple of injuries going into the tournament. Costello had a bad eye injury, um, and nearly didn't make the tournament, but then sort of got through in the end. Jersey went into the tournament with the injury. You know, it wasn't looking great as you go as you go to the first game. <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, me my main goal for it, or my second main goal for it, can't score because she's only got one eye and a detached retina. Well, but but again, yeah. they overcome that. But I guess really to understand Brazil in 1970, we've got to look at Zagala, <coughs> how instrumental he was because he was a previous World Cup winner with Brazil as a player, and then as a manager, he be, he became a first to win as a player and as a manager. But he was a wide player that liked to drop in deep and he um, he was very pioneering in, in his play and his role in that Brazilian team, wasn't he? Dead right, but Ian, this is the role that he wanted uh, to, to to have as a as, as a coach. The role that he played in in the early Brazil triumphs when he played as that wide player on the left who would drop back into midfield. And there was a couple of... Um, uh, Wingers, left wingers, in the squad from Saldana, which was uh, Paulo Cesar and a young kid called Edu. And he tried them and they couldn't do it because basically they were wingers. Yeah. Now, um, Rivellino was actually in that team, the team in the World Cup that played most way through, there were five players who had played number 10 for their club teams. And Rivellino was one of them. And he basically he was a midfield player that was playing out of position on the left rather than playing a winger and asking him to play an unfamiliar place in the field. So that worked. And he only brought Rivellino in a couple of games before the, the, the tournament started. Um, but the last couple of preparation games, and he played against Austria in the last game um, before the tournament started. And this quote in, in, I can't remember exact words, but it's worth the effect of Rivellino knew. This was the most important game of his life. And if he could make it play, he, this is the work play on the left going forward, play into midfield when they haven't got the ball, uh, he would book his place in the World Cup and that's what he did. Despite the, the game and a nil-nil draw, he did enough to con- convince Segala that he was the guy to solve the problem and B, basically, you know, people to let the, the false nine, well, this guy was a false 11, very much as Segala was, was when he was playing days, as you mentioned. But again, fitting all them t- them players into a, into a team, it's something in in modern day England, we, we or, or in any time of England, we struggle to fit fair flair players into a team. The chances of a Gareth Southgate, for instance, putting five number tens in a team, he, he yeah. would very, he would do it extremely well if it was five right backs to be put into a team. <laughs> but five number tens, absolutely no chance. But Zigalo looked at it and thought, those are my players. I'm going to blend them into a team. And, and almost, we can remember all of the forward players of Brazil uh, and the only defensive player that most people, I'm guessing, me in particular, I can remember, is uh, Carlos Alberto. I can't remember any Indeed. other defenders. Well, interestingly, um, the, the Cosmo was right back and captain. The guy on the left, left back was a guy called Everaldo, who came, also came into the um, team quite late. And he was the only guy who played the, the regular selection who wasn't wearing a 1-11 shirt. Um, there was a guy called Marco Antonio who was actually wearing a, the six shirt. Would have been left back, but he got to sort of eased out when Everaldo took his place. But of the other two, of the other two uh, defenders, an interesting story, Brito was a central... 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And playing alongside him was a guy called Piazza. Now, Piazza was a midfield player for his club. Yeah. Um, defensive midfield player. But in a training session, the head of the, the, the tournament, uh, a couple of defenders got injured and Zagala put him back to play there. And what it gave, um, a bit like Harry Hahn when he was playing into the yeah. Dutch team in the 70, for ability to go to bring the ball out and also bolster the midfield going forward from the back as well as Rivellino would do it when they hadn't got the ball dropping back into midfield. So Piazza was a wonderfully important player in that team and uh, he sort of was moulded into being a defender but he was a midfield player. But again, it goes to the philosophy of the manager. They they got players, composed players on the ball, players that can play football. They wasn't interested about winning the ball back. They're only interested in about what we're going to do when we get the ball. And that's their yeah. philosophy in Brazil. Different now, but back in those days, that's what Brazil were all about. I love the... Um, I love the story about the white kit. You've got to tell me oh, that. Yeah. And let's go back yeah. in time to 1950. Yeah, you're really right. 1950 was the famous, the uh, first post-World War World Cup. And it was held in Brazil. It's when the, uh, the Maracanã was built for. And it, it's strange. It was the only World Cup where there wasn't a final because there was there had two groups and then a, third, a group afterwards. And it just so happened the last game was Brazil and Uruguay. In those days, um, as you mentioned, Brazil basically wore all white, and uh, that was their, nas- their national strip colours. And uh, they, they played Uruguay in the final. Everybody thought Brazil was going to win. It was cut and dry. They were home. They were the best team that scattered through the group, scoring five goals, six goals, all this sort of thing. Whereas Uruguay had sort of started to struggle, but got through follows comfortably. And when Brazil scored to go ahead, it, it, the game was over, apparently, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And a guy called Alfredis here. Equalised. Um, who's, who's famously said in an interview with the BBC, "There's only three people ever ever quietened the uh, the Maracanã, and that's um, Frank Sinatra, the Pope, and him." And then the winning goal was called by a guy called Cifino, who actually went to to the Italian club afterwards. And basically, Uruguay beat them, and it was a really traumatic thing for Brazil. They'd sort of got this; they'd almost won the tournament before they even started playing it. And because of that, the loss was even deeper. And Pele said afterwards, um, "It's the only time he he saw his father cry." And uh, interestingly, uh, Zagallo, who was coached in 1970, was a soldier. In, in, in 1915, he was on duty, security duty at the Maracanã that day. And uh, because it was such a traumatic experience, Brazil, the players said, we're never wearing all white again. 
and there's a newspaper, and I can't remember what it's called, it might be Clarion, I can't remember, um, who, who agreed that they were on a competition to design, um, to people design the new strip. And it had to be taken from the colours of the Brazilian flag, which is green, blue, and yellow. Um, there was a young, I think it was an 18, 19 year old uh, kid who became a, quite famous afterwards. Uh, he designed the wooden design for the kids, the Canario shirt, which is obviously so famous now. And interestingly, in uh, the 1958 final, when they played Sweden, um, Brazil's kit was yellow and blue, as was Sweden's. So Brazil had to change. And uh, their second, nominated second strip was this all white. The players refused, point blank, to wear it. So they had to send out um, a couple of the training uh, staff to go into um, Stockholm and buy a set of blue shirts. But the Brazilian um, badges were sold afterwards just to avoid the players playing in all white. So it was a proper, they, they continued a massive curse because of what happened in the Maracanã in 1950. And they're a very superstitious race, aren't they? They're a very oh, religious definitely. race. And football is religion in Brazil. But it was an Englishman that took a football to Brazil and, and they started kicking the ball around. Uh, early doors in the World Cup, they did, were they in the 1930? 34 World Cup, that they didn't do anything really before no. 50, did they? They really come to no. light in that World Cup in their own patch. That's right. They were in 1930, uh, 34, and 38 in um, France. Yeah. I think they lost in the semi final to Hungary, off the top okay. of my head. And when they had a guy called Leonidas, who was probably, um, has been widely reputed as being the guy who invented the overhead bicycle. Ah, Leonidas Silva. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Apparently he is. I mean, if you talk to Doug Ellis, I mean, sadly Doug's passed now, but Peter Wyth told me that um, it was Doug that invented the bicycle kick when he played for Southport. (laughs) (laughs) But but apparently it was the silver. (laughs) Uh, I bet that's a story Doug used to tell well, well time and time again. Yeah, absolutely. But again, that 1950, when you get awarded the World Cup, when you build such a phenomenal stadium <coughs> that owes 200,000 fans to get beat in your own yard by Uruguay must have been the most bitterest pill to swallow. Oh, yeah. But eight it years was. after, Brazil were the kings of the world. Let's talk about that 1958 World Cup triumph because it wasn't just the great Pelé as a 17-year-old kid that scored a brace in the final. But there was another Brazilian there, arguably, and a lot of Brazilians would say was just as good as the great Edson Arances de Nascimento. It was the little bird, Garincha. Well, yeah. This is, yeah, I mean, Garincha was such a star in those days. Yeah. And it's interesting, the, the guy who won the Most Valuable Player um, Award in that tournament wasn't it wasn't Pelé, it wasn't Garincha, it was Didi. Gotcha. Uh, who won the, and he actually, in 1970, he was coaching the Peru team that Brazil played in the quarterfinals. But um, yeah, Garincha was an amazing player. I mean, you read so much about Garincha. Uh, he, was a, he was the guy who, who sort of um, epitomised Brazilian football. And you say quite rightly, Paul, you know, this, this was a religion in football there. And it wasn't about winning. It was about being uh, entertaining, showing what you do. So he beat a player, then go back and beat him again just because he could. Mm. Um, and the important thing was doing that rather than making, you know, scoring goals from there. But obviously, you know, they, they, they still did progress. But Grinch was a wonderful player in uh, 58, 62. And in 
interesting in that between 62 and 66, the, the, the military dictatorship took over in Brazil and uh, income tax with Brazilian footballers tend to be a bit more theoretical than absolute in those days. And when the military junta took over, that, that changed. And a lot of players um, had, had to sort of pay lots of back taxes. And uh, Zagallo, I remember, I can't remember, there was, there was a couple of players who virtually bankrupted themselves playing their, paying their back taxes. But Grinch was a sort of hard-living guy who sort of spent what he had and drinks and, and women and whatever. And uh, he could have basically implemented to, to pay his back taxes. And legend has it that Joe Havelange, who was um, in charge of Brazil FA at the time, paid Garincha's back tax just to make sure he could go to the 1966 World Cup because Havelange got in his mind, Brazil 158, 162, if they win 66, it would be great for his run to win the FIFA presidency. So it was interesting that, you know, uh, legend has it that he, he basically paid a lot of money to get Garinch to the 96 World, 66 World Cup when basically his best days were well behind him. I mean, he was great in 58, as you say, and even in 62, when um, Pelé was injured, Garinch was the star that stepped up into the uh, and, uh, and became the main man of that team. He was one of the greatest wingers of all time. In 1970, oh, yeah. they had another great winger, Jairzinho, that scored in every game that he played, but I just want to... Um, stay on the Garincha theme for a bit. Yeah. He he was an incredible personality, wasn't he? I think I mean he was an alcoholic. I think he fathered about twenty kids. I mean he yeah. was just a, a different kind of person. He would literally go back to his part of Brazil and play football with the kids just on the beaches. I mean. He, yeah. When you look at the professionalism of players now, don't drink, don't smoke, don't, you know, do all the right things. Garincha was the complete polar opposite, wasn't he? He was a one-eyed, oh, definitely. Absolute maverick. Um, you know, he, he, he had this thing, if you look at pictures of him, his legs were slightly deformed as well. Yeah, they were. It's one almost was like he was sort of got a, yeah, like a bit of a wave in his legs yeah. as, as they go up. But it certainly inhibits his, his play, as you say. He's an absolutely wonderful player. And I read his biography uh, not, not too long ago, and he used to go back where, where he was born. Um, there's a factory team he used to play for when he was starting off. Could he go back and play yeah. for them, as you say? Go play. Yeah. It didn't matter to him because he was just playing football, and that was all, that's all that mattered really to him, um, other than, than sort of, you know, wide women and song, as it were. And he loved to shoot birds, didn't he? Yeah, literally. That, yeah. That's how we got the nickname. <laughs> he liked to go shooting wrens, and um, that's why they called him Little Bird for his yeah, absolute love like of shooting. Yeah. yeah, that's t- absolutely true. Yeah, but what a player! What a team! So they've won the World Cup in 1958. They've gone down to the Swedish equivalent of JJB and got a load of shirts and sewn the badge. <laughs> 1962. <laughs> 1966 in England, and that was a World Cup that many people have said Brazil were kicked out of the World Cup, um, but that's not strictly true, is it? No, it, I mean it's certainly a factor, but you know, I mean, having looked at a lot of the a lot of the players, and especially Pele, uh, says you know that wasn't the main reason. Um, in '62, I think they won in '62. Um, the Brazilian FA decided to send the team on a tour of well, it was Europe and, and uh, North Africa and it took in Israel as well I think if memory serves me correctly and they played a crazy schedule of about mm. and the, I don't know if the exact figures are right now but something in the region of about 25 games in 45 days or something so basically it was travel, play, travel, play, travel, play, travel, play and it was all about brass 
Now, the, the, the rationale that the Brazilian FA said was it was to give uh, the team a chance to, get, to experience European conditions because the World Cup would be held in Europe in 66. And on the face of that makes sense, but it wasn't. It was all about basically raising money for the Brazilian FA, which they raised a lot of money of. And Brazilian FA to this day do the same thing, send the Brazil teams on, on tours around the world to raise money. But the other thing it did was it allowed European teams, European countries, to see Brazil play in the flesh and think and work out how they could beat them. Yeah. So that was the first thing that went wrong. The second thing is that they had a, um, they brought a coach back, um, Fiola, uh, who'd won the, the trophy in 58. And basically this guy was, was quite old by this stage. And they had also appointed a, what they call a technical committee, which is basically three or four people from the Brazilian FA who were there to oversee what was going on. And I, I talked to Andrew Downey about this, and he, he said that, that before flying across to England uh, for the tournament, they selected a squad of 46, 46 players and basically set them on a tour around Brazil to the various regions of Brazil where local um, dignitaries would pay the FA to, to have Brazil visit their region, their city, their town or whatever and play against local teams again to raise money. So they were doing a lot of honour of Brazil before they even flew out. And obviously it was very disorganised and Pelé says this, this, the preparation was terrible. And this obviously caused a lot of problems because they reckon, and, and then again, I haven't got the approach to say this, but legend has it, because there were so many players, they played lots of different t- different teams, but the same 11 players never played twice. So, you know, it's hardly the way to, to you know, produce a settled side. So, yeah, that was another reason. So many things that went wrong. Fiola was quite old and, and wasn't very well. His technical committee kept interfering in there. And then, obviously, there was the brutality that the, the first the Bulgarians dished out to them and then later the Portuguese in the final game. But, but, I mean, they won the first game and uh, um, Pelé and Jairzinho Sorry, John Senior. Yeah, Grinch scored. It was the last time uh, they played to, in the game together. Um, Pele was injured um, for the second game when they played Hungary and, and got beat. And they got to come back in the last game because they needed to win. And they made no less than nine changes. Now, you know, in a World Cup, if you've played your two first two games and you qualified, you played your first two games and you can't qualify, then quite often the coaches will give other team, other squad members a chance. But this is a vital game. They've got to win by three goals, I think, to qualify. And they make nine changes. So it was chaos. The organisation was all over the place. And, you know, if, from, I mean, to my right, I think, from what the players said, that was the reason they, they didn't get through, rather than the fact that, you know, there was a brutality being dished by other teams. Absolutely, completely disjointed, wasn't it? And a lack of organisation. Mm. Yeah, a bit of brutality as well. But the full picture is... Um, as you've just uh, put it there. Um, Brazil, the book. Oh, oh Jogo Benito. Um, it's not just, as, as you say, about the 70. It's about Brazil before and Brazil after 1974. Did you have many contributors to the book? You did with the Dutch one. You had Rudy Kroll, didn't you? That, but yeah. I'm guessing when you're looking at 50s and 60s and certainly the early 70s, there's not many still alive, is there, to tell the tales? Dead right, Paul. That's not a short country. No, I didn't yeah. really. Um, <coughs> imagine Andrew Downey, which I spoke to, a guy called Alex Bellos, who uh, written about uh, Brazil um, football in Brazil, how it's brought to lifestyle. Also a guy called Sam Conti, who brought a book out uh, last year about Brazil 
uh, in the World Cup. So I, I, I spoke to a few people who had had this experience of players, and uh, so yeah, it is really difficult because, and it's one of the reasons why I want to write the book. I need to write it now because. Uh, in 10 years' time, nobody will be there. And to listen to the rest of this podcast, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash SRB Media. Thank you.